Yeah, and it scared the shit out of you, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> and this leads to our big conversation about what art is and what artists are. It scared the shit out of you, and I know this because of what happened to me. It scared the shit out of you because you didn't know if you could do it again. And now let's go talk about Meryl Streep, and let's go talk about Daniel Day-Lewis. Hmm. They do it every day. They live in that extraordinary place of fear and unknown every single time they get up and work. And you want to know what an artist is? An artist is somebody who wants to be there. This is Way of the Artist with Brandon Colby Cook and Evan Schulte. Identifying your blocks and demystifying your struggles so that you can claim your own path and make your life a work of art. Welcome, all you listeners, once again, to Way of the Artist podcast, and we're really excited about this one. Uh, this is not, not just because of the quality of the person that we have on, but because our guest today, and he's making faces, you can't, you can't see this at home, and, and, and I'm going to just keep, I'm going to lean into this one. We have Ted Whittall on the show. He is a legend of the acting industry he is a god amongst men a titan <laughs> amongst mortals <laughs> and he hates absolutely everything that i'm saying right now and i am saying them all because i knew they would just press his buttons um no ted is a wonderful actor and teacher that's how we knew him he was an acting teacher and mentor to us and i wouldn't won't even say was I'm still learning things from Ted and he is still imparting his wisdom. And we thought we would bring him on. Maybe I'm not going to put, put too much pressure on you, Ted. Maybe some wisdom will happen. Maybe it won't. We're going to have a discussion and we're going to see where it goes. Um, so why don't you just say hello first and foremost, Ted? Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm regretting that I told you to just make up an introduction for me now. I should have that written one out idea. that was concise <laughs> and perhaps a little bit more accurate. Hi, well, guys. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, you know, we, we chatted a little bit yesterday, yep. um, just sort of, you know, about life, COVID huh. times, uh, and, and navigating uh, this territory as people, but also as people who... Uh, you know, are within industries of, of, you know, within the arts and, and acting and, you know, you have, what is, what, hold on, what I keep always forgetting what, like you have like a PhD or you have a bachelor's in performance studies. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Well, I, I, I didn't quite finish the PhD, but I got close. Right. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say about but it. But it was it was in performance studies? That's correct, yeah. That's correct. Okay, mm -hmm. excellent. One of the things that you had mentioned was that you have a fascination, and you have had one for a long time, about what is live performance. Yeah. Like, not not just within the realms of, of acting, but yeah. any, any kind of, including food. And I, I think that that's just kind of a, 
it's a question that I think a lot of people would they'd hear it like you just kind of make them furrow their brows and they're like, what do you mean? What is performance? Like, no, what is live it, performance? Yeah, what is but, live performance? But so, if you knew if you knew that the word live has only been around for eighty years, then maybe you would start to wonder yourself what a live performance is. Right. And if you knew even further that the word live performance does not come from theater, but from radio, then maybe you would also start to wonder, well, what do we mean when we say something is a live performance? So what do you think a live performance is? That's a good question. I mean, there's a theoretical answer and then there's a practical answer. And I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to tromp on anybody's practical idea or you know, experienced idea of what live means to them, because it means a lot of different things. But the, the idea is that it's not, it's not written in stone. It's not an eternal idea. It's an idea that changes over time. It changes with constructs. It changes with social arrangements. It changes with a lot of technology. It has everything to do with technology, believe it or not. And so, if we accept that what we feel is live will has changed and will continue to change, then maybe we can start that conversation. So it's like in a, it's a live performance is an evolving thing. That's interesting. I never really mm -hmm. thought of live as like something that started 80 years ago. I always thought, but yeah, it makes sense. I mean, technology obviously has a big play in all, all of this and, yeah. The way technology changes changes our definition of what live performance actually. Yeah. Is. Well, the first the first recognition of something as being live came on radio because radio became a very important medium um, at the turn of the last century, and they played concerts. Concerts were being played online, or they were being played on the radio, and people gathered around the radio and they listened. They listened to shows, and then they started to record those concerts and play them. And the audience became aware of that and they got angry and they said, hey, wait a second, this is a recording. Hmm. And so the radio folks, to respond to that, said, well, okay, we're going to label something as live, live from Madison Square Garden, live from the concert hall at so-and-so versus previously recorded from. Hmm. Right. And so that differentiation was really just a result of the audience kind of being hoodwinked in a way or feeling that they were hoodwinked they they had been listening they gathered around the radio and it was as live as anything you could imagine for them because it was happening it was happening somewhere at that moment and then when they found out wait a second that was actually recorded i feel gypped <laughs> radio came up with the idea of calling something live versus previously recorded and right. live was actually a higher value than, than pre-recorded? Uh, let's call it that for now, sure. Okay. Well, it, well, for some people, obviously, if, if it caused a kind of an uproar, then yeah, certainly there was that. Because yeah, I hadn't even really considered that because up to that point, li like everything would have been a live performance if you went to go and see music yeah, or whatever. Yeah, what was like, the word was... for it before technology? Yeah, right? like it, it was <laughs> just... It's like, oh, no, no, we're going to the theater today. Well, it's going to be live, <laughs> said, the, said the Greeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's live, man. I mean, let's go. Yeah. You know, no, it's just what it was. So, so the very idea that there had to be a differentiation came as a, as a result of technology, not 
and not add to its detriment just as a as a means of differentiation really because don't forget you know the you know the old the old um apocryphal I, you know, I don't think it's apocryphal i think it's quite true about the lumiere brothers when they showed they showed uh, they they filmed a train coming at the camera at an angle and it passed by the 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 side of the camera and went off screen and they filmed that and then they showed it to an audience the first time the audience saw it everybody got up and ran screaming from their chairs <laughs> because they thought a train was about to hit them yeah mm. right so the question of live then becomes is it what's actually happening or is it what we perceive to be happening Hmm. Wow. So it's like a whole rabbit hole. <laughs> no, not really. I, you know, I mean, it's um, it, it, going back to, you asked me about performance studies and performance studies is sort of a, a, is a rather now not so new academic pursuit. The idea, the idea is that how do we study performance across a broad spectrum of activities in everyday life, in theater, in culture, uh, you, you know, there's a broad idea of what performance means. And the, the idea of what live is, is one of the pillars of what that is, of, mm-hmm. of how we define that, that, that field of study. And it's kind of been beaten to a it's kind of been beaten to death, to be quite honest. Um, uh, largely because there are a lot of folks who want to believe that live performance somehow is politically emancipatory, that, that, that it cannot be commodified, it cannot be made into a product. And yet we now live well past the experience economy, right? I have friends who've made millions of dollars designing, uh, you know, experiences for brands. You know, every time you walk into a bar, you're walking into a branding experience. Every time you walk into a restaurant or every time you walk into an airport, you're being, your experience is being branded for you. So, so it's not so true that, that the live, the idea of the live cannot be commodified. It, but it's a worthwhile idea. I, I think it's an important emotional idea about what performance can be, because it's true to a certain degree that this thing happens and that it's gone. Right. Mm. Um, but is it really ever gone? Does it ever really disappear? And when it happened, did it happen just like that? Or were there a lot of things that made it happen? Uh, you know, <laughs> those are my concerns. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and these are things that it seems like you don't really have any definite sort of answers that you would care to give, but you know, is something I would never give an answer. No, no, no. I'd never give an answer. I'd I'd ask a few questions though. I mean, because I I think thinking through what we imagine as being alive and what it means to us can help us really identify the cultural moment we're at. How do we feel about ourselves? How do we feel about the world we're in? Uh, Is there hope? (laughs) You know, are we being swapped? You know, I mean, I could ask you guys what you think is important about live right now. And it it would tell you a lot. It would tell you a lot about yourselves. It would tell you a lot about where you're at. Mm. Um, And COVID right now, in the middle of all of this, where everybody's being forced online and into Zoom and on the podcasts, the idea of live is becoming even more important. And there's a lot of folks, especially in the theater, who are mourning the loss of live performance uh, and there are a lot of folks on the other side who are saying, hey, this is a moment where we finally get recognition for what's possible with digital media. Um, time will tell. <laughs> yeah, it's, in- and- it's interesting with live, like our last guest, uh, Danae, who was on, um, I saw her do her very first live performance. Yep. And, and she, um, there's like an, only a handful of people, like, I mean, 
a theater saw it, but like that was it, right? And then she actually ended up kind of getting some pretty big success later. But it was like, I got to see that performance. And I think what's kind of interesting about that is uh, most people were never there, but they, they'll listen intently to the story of how I tell my experience of being in that live. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, it, part of, that's part of what makes that live performance. Right. The live performance isn't a, a unique moment to itself. It's part of a whole uh, feedback loop. Right. That, that produces it as this disappearing moment that never disappears because now it's on your podcast and you're talking about it. And now right. it's over here and over there. And now her career has expanded and she's giving interviews and she's talking about that wonderful, wonderful live performance that she once gave. And, and so the live never really disappears. That's mm -hmm. what's interesting. However, it is unique, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, but the experience for someone hearing about it, you know, third party is different than the people who are actually there in some, in some respects. Uh, in some respects, <laughs> but you know, like, don't get me, don't get me wrong here. I actually took, I actually took a, a, a quite a radical view of what was going on inside performance studies. Because when I, when I entered into this conversation, it had gotten to a point where everybody said, well, okay, there's this live thing and it matters, but is there really any massive difference between sitting in a seat watching a show from one perspective versus sitting in a, at home and watching it on TV if you perceive them to be both live, if you perceive them to be both happening right now? Mm. And I said, yeah, I think there might be. And that's why I started looking at food and performance, because there's one thing you can't do online, which is you can't taste. <laughs> and yeah. so I started looking at artists who use food in performances and theater that uses food in plays and started asking the question, well, what does that mean about what live is? Right. And uh, one of the artists I worked with <laughs> became a buddy in a lot of ways, uh, he did this piece where he, he's a, he was a wonderful artist. He still is. He does these things where he decides he gets interested in something and he does, uh, he does these things he calls immersions, where he goes and he disappears for about four years and learns before producing an artwork. So in this case, he got interested in food. So he went to cookie school and he worked at K for caterers and in restaurants for a bunch of years. And then he produced a whole cycle of artworks with food. Um, and he did this with plants, too. He went to work in London for uh, uh, a gardener, and he, sp he spent four years gardening. And then he learned how to, you know, cultivate plants and hybridize them and do things. And he, he grew these extraordinary things, and then he put them into an art gallery where it became art. Hmm. It becomes art because he's an artist, and he says, this is art. And the gallery agrees, and they put it in the gallery. And it becomes art and you laugh, but that's actually it. You know, let's, let's demythologize what art is first. Cause up there, when we talk about the live as the most important or highest form of performance, we're also speaking about art as this eternal thing, this transcendental object that lives outside of our human or, or lived experience. And it's kind of bullshit, right? That's all old Kantian ideas about God and art. Art is a lived experience. 
and is produced by a lot of cultural influences, museums, uh, critics, artists, people who go see it. We all buy into the notion that it's art, right? And that's an okay thing, as long as we understand we're doing it. So <laughs> it's also what produces things as not art. It's what produces uh, uh, indigenous uh, craftspeople as craftspeople and not artists. Like they're making crafts, that's not art. Well, why not, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's also being contested. So you have to understand those kind of the ways that art creates something that is art and the way it also creates things that are not art. And mm -hmm. this is the same with performance. So what he did was my favorite work that he did, that this uh, artist did, uh, is he took, uh, he did some research on The Last Supper. And there was a, an Israeli food critic <laughs> who wrote up a, a speculative piece about what might have actually been served at The Last Supper. And so he went and he figured out how to cook that the way they might have cooked it. And he sourced some ingredients in London and he cooked the meal. And then he set up the gallery. He built a table for 12 people in the gallery and people came and they signed waivers and they went and sat at the table and he washed their feet. And then he cooked them this meal and served it to them. And then he, he served them wine and they all got drunk. And people started walking on the table and doing all kinds of weird ass things. And he was, he filmed and photographed the entire thing. And then it ended and they went home and he was caught by the idea of all the food that was left over on the table. And his original intention was to just take the film and take the photographs and mount them in the gallery as a sort of artifacts and evidence of the live thing that had happened. But he decided, you know, I'm going to leave the food on the table the way they, the way they chewed it, the way they left it, the, what they chose he didn't eat, right? <laughs> and then he reopened the gallery with his, the film and with the photographs, but the food had started to rot. And people came into the gallery and they watched the films, they watched everything, but the rotting food became more and more pronounced over time until, you know, health officials were called in to figure out if it was a safe thing to do. But, you know, people started complaining, hey, you know, my eyes are watery, maybe I'm being poisoned here. Uh, and it became this really intense meditation on what live meant, it, because the food didn't go away, it kept rotting, it kept staying there, it kept changing, it kept performing in a way, but also it reminds us then of the food that went home and the bodies of the people who ate it. We have their images, we can watch them on the screen, we can watch what they were doing, but they also went home and they all let the remains go into the toilet, you know, into the toilets, into the you know, sewage system. So now art has spread out into the most mundane areas of our lives. And the live is still there. It's still alive, it's still kind of happening, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, find, I, I don't know, I, I found that, I found it enlightening because we're moving from The Last Supper, which has been represented so many ways in such high art. Uh, and obviously it's, uh, it's a, a enormous theological concern too, to, you know, what's happening in the sewer system and, <laughs> and, and calling in the health, you know, inspector to make sure that, you know, the, you know, the gallery is safe. Uh, and so that connection between the mundanity, between the everyday, between the live as something that has happened and something that is repeated 
in artifact and something that continues. I found that to be fascinating. I found it to be a, a really interesting way of thinking through what art is and, and what we do as artists and what we do as audiences to art, right? Because here I am later and I'm writing about it and I'm on, I'm on Zoom with him because he's in Australia. Or no, sorry, he's in New Zealand now. He's, he's from Mexico City, but he's in New Zealand teaching. And so I'm on Zoom with him talking through all this stuff, interviewing him. And I'm writing this article that's being published in, in London through a, a press that's putting it out online around the world. And, you know, he's done this piece in London and Belgium. And we tried to set it up in Mexico City, but we couldn't quite get it done. Uh, we're hoping to do it again another time, you know. So where does the live end? Where does it begin? For who does the live happen and for whom does it not happen? Those are the kind of the interesting questions. And, you know, there's no answer. I'm not going to give an answer. You won't have an answer. But it's actually the pursuit of an answer, I think, that leaves us kind of dull. I, I would absolutely agree with, with that same sort of where, where we've arrived to or where you've arrived to at, at all of that. You know, it's like just as an actor, I remember... Um, and it was something that I had got kind of disillusioned with after a while from studying with a lot of different people was that mm -hmm. this, this sort of thing that I, I loved to do just for this, this doing of it, the experience of acting, the, the a kind of a joy that was within it. And then working with certain people, it took on this very serious quality and there was a right way and there was a wrong way to do it. And, yeah. uh, there was, it was all about having to, to touch back on what you're saying. It was all about having answers to everything. It was like, it was like, it was like every character you play was just like a, it was just like a, you know, a puzzle to be solved. And once it's done, you just take that and then you recreate it in front of a group of people. And yeah, when, That's, and then uh... it took on, I, I, you know, it took, and we can maybe dive into this because oh, you know, I'm happy to, you studied, Meisner and Meisner was something and and the teacher who I had who who worked Meisner with me it, it reshaped some things for me and, and in many yeah. ways helped me to reclaim some of this old thing where I happened where it's like well it's never really done like you know there's never this done point that you're doing like you hit that performance and it's still you're still going like you're still ongoing yeah. there's never you're not done yeah. like it's and well well, let, let me pull that back. Let me pull that frame back a bit into a larger frame, because what we're talking about is the difference between performance and text. And the old-fashioned idea is that somehow there's a text that is fixed with all the ideas, and you need to discover those ideas as they exist and replicate them. And that's the goal of theater, and that's the goal of acting, and that's just the most wrong idea out there. And Meister has come along and said, we don't actually know. The moment itself is not stable. It has no meaning except in the, in the moment that it happens and then it's over and then now you move to the next. And for a long time, those two ideas didn't seem, com they didn't seem compatible. And so Meisner technique got an idea, it got a reputation as being a negator of the text. The text doesn't matter in Meisner, but that's far from true. It was far from true from Sandy, and it was far from true from my training at the Neighborhood Playoffs, and far from true from your training as well. But how do you make those ideas compatible? But I, I, I've had the great good fortune of working. I, I went to work with Darren Gobert. Darren, Darren 
Gobert was a professor of mine at York, and now he's a, a big chair, <laughs> big full-time named chair professor at Duke University, which means that he is now considered the god of dramatic text in the academic world. And he is. I'll be blunt with you. The guy's the smartest man I've ever met. <laughs> and Darren was the um, editor-in-chief of Modern Drama, which is the big academic journal, the leading academic journal of the dramatic text in the world. And it is. Uh, and I, I worked with him on that. I took a course of them, and then I worked with him on an issue of that, and on his very first issue, when we worked on his editorial. And his view, from a textual point of view, because he, he's an English, he, he's a professor of literature, but he's a professor of dramatic literature. And so he pronounced himself in modern drama. And like, understand, this is within the last five years, so this is still very new. His editorial was all this. There is no meaning in the text outside performance. So his view of how we could read, he was like, look, we don't stop doing close readings of a text. We look at the way the lines are constructed. We look at the meanings inside the language. But to understand a text, it can only be understood within the framework of its production, of its expression. And so he was calling on scholars not just to read the text, but to read the text in the context of a production. So you could stop reading, you know, Tennessee Williams for Tennessee Williams, but read Tennessee Williams for how it was done in Kansas City or in China. One of the best papers I saw was a brilliant, brilliant reading of the FBI notes on Lorraine Hansberry when A Raisin in the Sun came out. Because she was considered a, a radical and a communist. And when The Raisin in the Sun went on Broadway, the FBI took note and they attended the plays and they read the text and they produced significant documentation on it. And it turns out they understood the play better than the critics at the time did. Because <laughs> they understood Lorraine Hansberry as a radical. The critics at the time were trying to like whitewash her. And so by going through the Freedom of Information Act, this academic got a hold of the FBI notes on her and read all the stuff about her in that play and was like, holy crap, these guys understood the play. And so, so the paper ended up being absolutely stunning because it was like, look, you know, we're reading the play within the context of the way it was perceived and the way it was done at that moment in time, which would be radically different from it is today, the way it is today. And mm -hmm. so we no longer have to think about the text as being this higher meaning that's already implied. We have to understand the author. We have to get inside the author's head. You can't. It's not possible. And I've never understood why we would go after that. We do have to look at the text for what it for what is constructed in there, but understand that we're making it here and now. And if it doesn't have meaning here and now, it's like what Stanislavski always used to ask. Okay, we're going to do this play, but why here? Why now? Right? Mm -hmm. And so we're making this performance, but why here? Why now? There's nothing wrong. We have to lose the idea that there's universal meaning. But that meaning happens in the moment here and now and that it has repercussions in terms of our culture here and now. Sometimes the repercussions, you know, sometimes those ripples go out farther than other times, but it doesn't diminish that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think, I'm thinking like, you know, just in a person's life, right? Like there's this 
um, idea of who you're supposed to be, what your life's supposed to mean, all of that. And, you know, moment to moment of your life, I mean, things are going to happen. People are going to pass away, you know, that you don't, you don't look at the script, but I think like, I think for myself, especially as I think like over the last several years or 10 years, like the narrative that I was telling versus the narrative that I lived and experienced, it's like that thinking that I actually know what this means and thinking like why this is important. For example, there are things in like seven or 10 years ago that I thought were so important. And now I'm just like, they're not important at all. Like why do they even care about that? But my kind of like programming and social cultural kind of thing was like, you need to make this important. You need to do this. And then through experiences of life, it's like, the meanings changed the experience of things that were maybe devastating at one point become like beautiful. And like, I, I I'm kind of relating it as you're talking about that. Cause like a lot of what Evan and I try to like talk about is just how like your life is like, you're like an artist. If you look at your life that way, like you can, it's like a philosophy of like, it doesn't just have to be, um, I don't know, like whatever you told, whatever you were told your life was supposed to be. It could be a discovery. It might be something different. And at any point, there could be a plot twist. You know, you could just change direction and what mattered one day doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah, you know, it's a tricky question. Cause you know, the question of, the question is what is art, right? And you know, the, <laughs> there's the famous urinal on a wall, there's art. Why is it art? It's art because it's in a gallery and I say so. Um, yeah. But then again, there's the question of, well, whether art is about uh, some innate talent. Is it? But it is also not, right? I don't want to see paintings by people who just have no the capacity to paint. <laughs> you know, I've watched actors who really, really, really want to act, but they can't quite convince me that there's something going on and i've watched actors who have a lot going on but they're not that interested in acting and so are they making art i think you know one of there's an artist and his name escapes me and i've seen his work at the uh at the moma in new york and he does these bizarre things like he locks himself in a cage for a year And people come and feed him, and they take pictures. And he does it completely in silence with no fanfare, no nothing. And then when the year is done, he creates, he takes all the the artifacts, all the things, the pictures and everything, and he puts, they go into the museum and he doesn't show up. He's not there. So, you know, the idea that maybe I'm making something for someone to see intentionally kind of gets it kind of disappears in that doesn't it and yet he's also producing it for people to see but could you imagine living in a cage for a year mm-hmm. you yeah, know i i often um like it's it, there's something about artists like that that i'm so fascinated by um but yeah. there is another part of me that just goes but is this yeah is this art or is this 
is this someone who's just they have a different mind <laughs> you know well, most of the artists that i know have a different mind i'll be blunt about that the question is whether or not <laughs> what we imagine art to be right if uh, i i used to know a man who was a brilliant painter and he never showed his work because he didn't think it was good enough and one day he's going to pass away and his stuff is going to be found and people will look at it and go, wow, this guy was great. And then he'll suddenly be an artist. But for today, he, he works at Stats Canada, right? Yeah. Uh, and we hear those stories and we dig up those stories. Um, oh, look at that. You know, we found these paintings by this guy and everybody, all the, all the great art critics say, hey, this, this person was fantastic. And, well, you know, most recently, uh, forgive me, I'm getting old, but my name... My, my ability to recall names is terrible, but there's a wonderful photographer who came to light recently. Uh, and she, she lived as a nanny in Chicago her entire life without any fanfare. She had a camera and she took pictures. And after her death, those pictures were discovered and now there are books out and, and, and there are, you know, exhibits of her work everywhere. And she was an artist. She was an artist because she was living intentionally to create art without showing it. Mm -hmm. So what are the definitions? And I think the key in there is intention. Mm. Intention was a word that you had mentioned was, um, did was I? one of your selections that you had brought up. There are people <laughs> who argue to, who, there are people who argue in certain respects that intention doesn't matter anymore, but um, yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. I agree with that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, there's so many things that you're saying and you speak about it at such a level that it's like, I, I, I honestly, like, I have to really focus to like, keep up with you. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. No, I like I'll it. Speak it's slower. It's, <laughs> but like, it's, it's, it's got lots of things sort of bouncing around for me, like for myself as someone interested in the creative process in different creative processes of different people and as well as a teacher you know i i w went down a path of of sort of studying and and not you know through any institution but just my own study of a lot of the sort of eastern wisdom traditions the, mm -hmm. the traditions in in um, I would say in Hinduism and Zen particularly yep. have sure, yeah. really, really struck me in, in terms of some of their philosophies and, and some of the things you're saying are, are kind of lighting those things up a little bit, like trying to, to talk about what art is, you know, like the, the Hindus would have this thing like, well, it's, it's, I think the word is like neti neti, like, well, not this, not this. It's a way of describing what God is. You know, it's like, well, right. what is God? It's like, but it's practice. It's practice with discipline and intention mm -hmm. in those, in those traditions. Right. Yeah. But also with no attachment to outcome, you know, yes. that's like a, the sort of essential element exactly. of like the Bhagavad Gita would be, it's like, unless like, basically you, cr you're creating karma. It would be under their sort of theology is yeah. karma is created when you take action with expectation with an idea of outcome and you're creating karma in that way. So to let go of the outcome and 
I, that's something that I've always sort of considered when it comes to, well, this question of, of what is art. Well, if you can answer that question, write a paper and everybody will read it. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm in the same position. I'm like, I don't want to say what it is, but there's something, there's something to that for me. And, and I think that's maybe the most I've ever been able to say about certain things like that is like, well, yeah, there's something to that. There's some, there's some grain of truth. There's some seed, there's some, there's something to walk away within there, but is it, is it, like you said, like a universal truth? Is it a, a constant thing? I, uh, I, I don't know. You know, I really liked uh, when I was back in the days when I was just reading for fun, uh, <laughs> Blaise Pascal, Blaise Pascal, he, he, he was a physicist, you know, uh, you know, air pressure, Pascal is measured in Pascal's. He was a physicist. He measured that, but he was also a, theolo- a theologian and one thing, you know, his, his sort of thing about faith, I think, is what is interesting here. Which is, a, to the degree that I agree with you, is that I don't know that you can actually constructively describe art. It's, it's a bit of a leap of faith. And so as a teacher, and I've come around to being a teacher, although nobody seems to want to hire me. <laughs> but as a teacher, I, I, I got really dissuaded by people who taught art as art because I don't think, and, and, and as, I, as I encountered pedagogy, there was a term for it, which is surface learning and deep learning. And the thing about surface learning is that it's all teachable, but deep learning you cannot do. It's something that happens to the student and you have to create an environment where it can happen but you can't control it at all, nor can the student. And I thought about that in terms of teaching and art. And I thought, well, why are we focusing on deep learning? Because all the lessons are about deep learning. You're gonna go in there and have the deep lesson about art. So I decided to focus my teaching on surface learning, on skills, acquire the skill, acquire the skill, perfect the skill, in the hope that the deep learning could happen. And understanding that for whatever reason, it may not happen for everybody, but at least they'd have the skill. And I started to look at art that way too, which is that a lot of people have those skills, but art is the thing that happens on its own. Art, art's the thing that happens to those people. And they can do something with the skill to make it into art. And that reminds me of Pascal and the idea of the leap of faith, this idea that you can't I mean, Pascal was famous for the the wager, Pascal's wager, which is, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, if you don't believe in God and you die and God is real, you're in trouble. If you do believe in God and you die and God doesn't exist, well, at least you lived a good life. So odds are it's better to believe in God. Right. And it's often interpreted as a, as a sort of a clever way of proving that faith is a good idea. But his, I, I, my reading of it was that he, what he was saying was that logic can only take you so far. And here's the logical argument for God. And it's a stupid argument, right? And so if you want to talk about what art is, I think logic can only take you so far, you know, and most of the arguments are stupid, but, 
the good news is that the skills you learn in making art are practicable. They can take you through a whole lot in your life. Just like the skills you learn in prayer, the skills you learn in meditation, the skills you learn in a lot of things. Maybe you're not going to end up being the next, you know, uh, guru, the next pope. But you, can, might, you might end up being a good person if you, practice, if, if you practice those skills. And the same is true, I mean, from my end, uh, of, being, of teaching actors and being an actor, is that maybe, you know, not everybody's going to end up being the, the next great actor. But you'll be a pretty good person. And you'll be a really good communicator. And these are skills that can work for you. And so what's wrong with that? Yeah, it can take you to all kinds of experiences. I, I actually, um, I've quoted you many times on our podcast mm -hmm. without you knowing. Uh oh. <laughs> Which yeah, I know. always like the great Ted Whittle said I've, this. I've been misquoted. <laughs> yeah, but like I, you know, before you before you deserted us and you and you fled out to the east. I, it was a mistake. I'm I'm saying that now. <laughs> I've been handed my hat here out east. <laughs> I yeah. hope you're cold. <laughs> but before you had left, I like on the last class that you had with our group, you know, you had said to us, I don't know where this is going to take you. I don't know what this acting stuff is going to do for you, but it will take you, it will take you somewhere. <laughs> You know, and it was, yeah, you said, yeah, that was you. That was you. Um, okay. And I never, I, I never forgot it. Like it was just this, I don't know. There was this incredibly, um, I found it very beautiful and kind of bittersweet in a way because it was this thing of like, you know what? Yeah. Like looking around this room of, of people, that was a tremendous classroom of people. It was, that, yeah. That, that were in I miss them all. I still do. And just the recognition that, like, yeah, you know, like, there's, it's, it's very unlikely that, you know, any of us are going to become, you know, the next sort of Chris Hemsworth or, you know, <laughs> Stone or something like that. You know? that that's, that's, that's winning the genetic lottery. I, I can't help you with that. I just I'm mean in terms fine, of fine, like, fine, fine person, but yeah. I just mean in terms, you know what I mean, in terms of, of sort of, you know, being a big, a big sort of household international star of an actor, you know, like the, the likelihood of that was, is not likely at all, but that yeah. the things that we were doing in that room mattered, you know, the things that we were learning in that space together, it, it, makes a difference in our lives in some way. Well, let me share, let me share the background of that because that actually was intentional on my part because I was teaching you guys and I'd come out of a couple of places in Vancouver that were teaching and I was really struck by a problem. And the problem was that everybody was there to build that career. And the industry is filled with bias. It's filled with problems. It's filled with, who, what talent looks like that may not necessarily jive with what people are. Um, and I felt, I felt it was wrong for me to take money from people <laughs> and encourage them to believe that they too could be the next thing. When that, that was out of there, it's, it's out of, that part is out of your control because 
I, the industry I knew could be cruel and it could be judgmental and it could be biased and racist and gendered and all of the problems that we're having that are now you know, 10 years later, way out in the open. So we can talk about them now. But I thought, okay, well, what am I doing then? If I, if I know this, then what am I teaching? And it took me a while to come to the terms with it. But what I came to terms with was the idea, but I could teach you how to be good people. I could teach you through this how to be better people and how to build something for yourself that you knew and understood and had and that filled you up. And that's, that's where I came from. It, it, it pushed me for better or worse towards trying to do academia, um, which in the aggregate in the, you know, I learned a lot and I'm glad for what I learned, but uh, the institution of academia has got its own issues that it's not terribly good at dealing with. So I'm back to square one again, <laughs> but the moment you describe was part of an intentional process on my part, which was to rid you of the notion that you had to become the next great thing. I mean, look, man, I mean, it's no, no secret that I know Viola Davis. It's no secret that I've known her for a little while. And now maybe things are different for her right now, but the last time I saw her, she'd already won an Oscar for Christ's sakes. And she still saw herself as a middle-aged black woman for whom it was going to end. And she had to just keep rowing the boat and making the money while she could. Right now, I think that's changed for her, but whether she believes it's changed, I don't know. But I tell you what, she's a great person. And her purpose for doing what she was doing was to build a wonderful life for herself, a life that she didn't think possible and imaginable. And she brought a child into her life and that mattered to her, right? And the point of saying this is that as we say, well, not everybody's going to be that, I'm telling you the story of somebody who is that, who's not really sure that she's gonna be that, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And she is a wonderful actress. She's all of that. And by the way, she's a Meisner trained actress. She studied with Ron Stetson. I'm going to put Ron Stetson's name out there. Ron was one of my teachers at, uh, in New York. And she actually thanked him when she won an Oscar for a good reason. He, Ron's a great teacher. Yeah, if I, the, oh. Well, if I can, Ted, actually, I want to ask you a question. Because yeah, there yeah. was, um, going back to that class, before you move on, Tell us some other awesome stuff. Uh, th there was a class that you started, and it was um, called your character class. <laughs> you had a good experience in that class, man. I, I did. I you did. did. You did great work. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, man, th that, was, that was honestly a life-changing experience for me. But um, one of the things that you taught me, which li has literally changed my life as, as a, not a, like a screenwriter, a filmmaker, actor, everything, but yeah. we worked a lot with impediment. And yeah. I remember um, you'd give us, you'd, you'd kind of give us direction. You'd say like, find an impediment, vocal or physical or whatever. And I remember um, doing that. And I remember the emotions that came up just mm -hmm. from giving myself an impediment, which for me up until that point, like, I, I could get emotional in scenes, but it was like always this really like weird distant thing for me. And then all of a sudden, 
<laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, emotion was coming up in ways that I had never, like, it wasn't like I was trying to do something. Ways that you were not in control of. Exactly. And I was losing control, but yet it was working. And it was weirdly, like, if I didn't stop it, you know, incredible things could come out of all that. Um, what kind of inspired that idea, like, to, to, to share with us impediments, to use that in our performance, and, and, and well, then kind of let it navigate our stories? First of all, it's right out of the Meisner playbook, right? It's not everybody, when they think of my Meisner, they think about, you know, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, repeat, repeat, repeat. That's that. My fingers are saying this is not a big piece of Meisner. The repetition idea is meant to be forgotten, but it's fetishized because it's easy to fetishize. It becomes, it's almost like a meme, right? It's like an internet mm -hmm. meme, people are repeating. Where Meisner, in my view, excelled is in his thought about character. And he created this idea called impediments, which we did in the second year, um, and which is done by, I'm going to look for the book, oh, Bill, um, Bill Esper. Bill Esper actually wrote about it. Because Bill Esper was Meisner's sidekick, and I shouldn't say that. I'm so sorry. For anybody who knows Bill Esper, I apologize. He, he, he worked with Sandy Meisner for about 25 years and then launched his own studio. But unlike those who wrote about Meisner from direct experience, Bill Esper wrote about impediments and character. Meisner had a lot to say about character. And Bill was the one who picked it up and carried the ball forward. Now, like you, Brandon, I had a significant experience doing that work, which is why it's important to me. But it, there, are two, there are two things that happen in the way I work in the world. One is that I do things. The other is that I set back and I, I pull back and I think about them right? Uh, I'm, I'm tortured that way because I wish I could do one better. I could do, I wish I could do one really well. I do both kind of okay, <laughs> you know, but in thinking about through why impediments works, it works because often we are taught as actors to think about character from a writer's perspective, that the character is what you do. But if we really listen to what Sandy was talking about and what that exercise showed you, which I believe to be true, is that character is what's in the way. Because honestly, if we could walk into a room and get what we wanted, there'd be no drama. And writers will say, well, yeah, I'll create the impediment. I'll create the obstacle. But that's not enough. The actor has to have their own obstacle. And the obstacle is character. So if character is not built on impediment, on the thing that prevents you from doing the thing you want, right? And for me, the empirical proof that it works is in what I saw in you and what I saw in a lot of the other actors, what I felt in myself and what I read when I read it, which is that it makes a difference when you set yourself up to fail at something you really wanna do. Hmm. When something gets in the way, it becomes elemental. It becomes embodied because that's what we're trying to do as actors is take all of these ideas and all of these things and embody them. So how do you do that? You're right. I can make myself feel things, or at least I can make myself look like I'm feeling things, mm -hmm. but it's over there and I'm over here. 
but how does it happen? Like so deep that I don't even know what's going on. Well, yeah. it happens by putting your body in the line of fire. And that might, that means by literally creating a problem for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask this girl to marry me, but I can't stop stuttering. Yeah. And if I stutter, she's going to say, get lost, pal. Right. That's old fashioned, but that's the idea. You experienced it. And I remember, I'm sorry. I still remember that class clearly i saw everything you did and i still remember every moment of that class every moment of your exercise so i know how fundamental that experience was to you uh but that's how fundamental it was to me too that i remember it yeah right that's what yeah. acting is it it was um you know that particular class um that was actually before evan had joined us and i kept being like <laughs> evan you gotta come work with ted man well <laughs> but, you know uh, what we couldn't i couldn't get that up and running anywhere else and then yeah. Some people had problems with it at the place where we did it. And, uh, but that's, you know, that, that's part of the Canadian culture. I'll be honest with you. Uh, we're not there yet. I just experienced that this past year. I, I went to work for a college and tried to bring this stuff in and they, they really freaked out. And um, they freaked out because I think Canada is a little concerned. <laughs> <laughs> they're concerned about public behavior. They're concerned about what all these things might mean. They're concerned about order um, in ways that Americans are not. And we're experiencing that right now in the worst possible sense in the U.S. But the positive pole of what we're witnessing is a culture of experimentation, a culture of fearlessness. Um, and Canada hasn't quite got there yet. Mm. Um, yeah, one it's... last, one last thing. Sorry, Evan. One last yeah, thing on this. Um, and I just want to make a comment cause I know we'll move on, but when we no, did that impediment, those impediment exercises and that one in particular, we were talking about that you remember. Um, I remember <laughs> I had all this bullshit like everybody does. <laughs> And, and it became so evident, it yeah. became so evident to me after that class. And I was like, I was walking around pretending I had all my shit together. And I was like, like my shit doesn't stink. And then all of a sudden I like walked out of that class and in a good way, I was like, wow, I didn't know, like I didn't even know that about myself. And I felt like I changed. And that was kind of the interesting thing about the impediment. It didn't just kind of enhance that performance. Yep. It literally made me see myself more truthfully, which was quite profound to walk away from an acting class and be like, wow, like I feel like now I know something about myself I didn't know before. Yeah, and it scared the shit out of you, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> and this leads to our big conversation about what art is and what artists are. It scared the shit out of you, and I know this because of what happened to me. It scared the shit out of you because you didn't know if you could do it again. And now let's go talk about Meryl Streep and let's go talk about Daniel Day-Lewis. Hmm. They do it every day. They live in that extraordinary place of fear and unknown every single time they get up and work. And you wanna know what an artist is? An artist is somebody who wants to be there, who thinks that's where I'm alive. I'm going to keep going back. Mm -hmm. Although apparently Mr. Lewis has decided he's had enough. <laughs> I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. He does things that I don't think I could survive. 
And the problem for the public at large is that they watch him and it's also real and so profound and they go, yeah, it's great. Why can't he keep doing that? But they don't get what it takes to do that. They don't get where he goes. You had a moment. I had a moment. One moment. That moment scared me so badly I didn't get up in class for two weeks until Ron Stetson looked at me and went, hey, you're coasting. <laughs> I was like, I'm scared out of my fucking mind. I didn't say that to him, but he knew. Hmm. Right? And, and go back to Viola Davis. She goes there too. She lives there too. Look at the trailer of that new show she did, Ma, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Right? The Viola I know is a very shy person. I'm watching her in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and I'm like, whoa, where is she going here? <laughs> you know, for her to do that? Wow. Most people cannot do that. Mm. Right. I want to just touch on something quickly, like, you know, talking about this thing, you know, like this sort of exercise or technique, you know, of, of impediment for an actor and, you know, a little sort of experiment that I, I did a while back was like, I had to look at, you know, because I, I trained with with some teachers who it was like, you know, it was it was so about these t- like the technique and these and these tools. Like, so what's your super objective? What's your objective? What's your, <coughs> what's your you know? Yeah. And and I just grew to absolutely hate all of these words because there was something so cold and me- cold and mechanical yep. about the whole thing. And going through them and just to be like, well, hang on, well, what? what is the the human element that this is trying to speak to you know and and try and like reclaim some but to a large degree that i discovered that that approach of you know well what's your objective and your super objective and your tactics and all of this stuff i'm like this is this is sociopathic like this is actually like no it's about power Oh yeah, and it's all about power. Yeah, it is. No, no. Look, you want the actual. You want the thing. It's about the power of text over body. It's about the power of of certain discourses, of scientific discourses over human emotion and experience. Right. Um, do you really want to get into this? Well, I mean, well, I, uh, I would love I to, but we are we are approaching an hour I mean, yeah i think this is a bigger one this is look this is about copyright and text and the power over bodies mainly women and black bodies well that's holy shit i want to know like how, it, how this arrives to that place um no no it's how but, we arrived from that place Right. So when we are being presented with an idea that acting is all about uh, super objective and and all of this stuff, what we're being trained to think is that our bodies are subjected to the power of an idea expressed in text, which is a very male idea, very idea, an idea of masculine power that is that is propped up by copyright. Right. The idea of copyright. So we have a play that is copyrighted and you cannot move from that play that has power (laughs) oh man you don't want to go into this right now (laughs) (laughs) we don't or you don't (laughs) no i have to go back to my notes well i i personally would love to i'd love to get into it i mean i would love to keep picking your brain for as long as you could go um but i mean i you know 
and we did say we got, would be on got, a time limit. So it's, yeah. it's all right if we leave that maybe for a bookmark. We'll, we'll really try and <laughs> yeah, get but you out again. You know what? You know what? That's, this is not my field. I've yeah. read it, but it's not my field. I would have to actually go back and really look it up and really get it together so I could present it to you and be very honest about what people have written. Mm. But it's been written. <laughs> look, you know, think about it this way. Think about all the black performances that happened that were not documented and not contained in text. Think about the idea that Elvis Presley is famous, but there's so many black artists who are not, right? And it's about the power to, it's about the power to imprint, copy, and own something. Hmm. And so when you are being told you have to subject yourself to an idea of that which is owned by somebody else, it's about power. Right. I'm so curious as to how, because like my brain's not putting together the tie to like the things like super objective and objective and all these techniques that we learn as actors. The way that I'm interpreting it is that like if, if, if it were to come out of you and it's beyond the text or beyond the copyright, beyond all of that, and, and that is more honest, more true, more real, then no one could own that, you know, and that would be. That's a way of thinking about it, but go back to go back to your character exercise. Okay. With do you think impediment. you do you think you had yeah? Do you think you had no objective and no super whatever those words are? Do you think you you were just sitting there feeling shit, or are no. you trying to do something? I was trying to do something. Right. So, but that that impediment was in the way of that. Yes. And that impediment, it's like it's it's it when the impediment was a way in way of it. I, I don't know if I could literally describe what came up for me emotionally because I did at that moment, I didn't understand that. And it was so hard. Like I just remember it being so painful and like weirdly incredible. (laughs) That's the beauty of the live moment is that you have no idea what's going to happen next. And that can only happen when the people who are performing have no clue what's going to happen next. And so we are, if you're being given ideas about acting your objective, then you're also being given ideas about producing what is supposed to happen next. And if you know, then the audience knows and we're all dead. You might as well just tape it and put it on YouTube. You dig? Oh, I dig. I dig. So that's what live is. Live is, live is nobody freaking knows what's about to happen. Hmm. Hmm. Oh man, I love this. That oh, this like came full circle. I love this. Uh, I love I how that. this I did all that for unfolded. you. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> I try to help you. Great out Ted Whittle. <laughs> <Yeah>. Full circle. <laughs> hey, I want to come back out in Vancouver and teach. Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, I'm, we'll... I'm, I'm I'm in day one. Whenever you're here, or hang, whatever. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, we're gonna start going through the through the motions of. Uh, I think wrapping this conversation up so that you can, yep. you can yep. get to your kids. And uh, so, and we've also got sort of seven rapid fire questions for you Go. as Go. well, but first, first, first beer, beer, we're all having a beverage. Um, now is the time to plug. Now I am drinking. Uh, <laughs> I am drinking. I, I, I am. Uh, <clears throat> I'm dialing in here from Hamilton, Ontario, and I'm drinking a uh, beverage called circling the sun apple and cherry cider from the good folks at 
the Collective Arts Brewing Company of Hamilton, Ontario, a fine, fine, fine company built down on the old waterfront of Hamilton who are making wonderful beers and ciders. Excellent. Uh, I am drinking the Bonnie Brook Bitter from the 101 Brew House and Distillery here in Gibson's, British Columbia. And uh, I got this one because Bonnie Brook is the area of Gibson's that I'm uh, currently living. And, uh, and it's great. It's quite light. It's quite you know, light for. I tell you bit. what, I went to, I went to, I went once to the best restaurant in the world. It was called El Bouilly. And it was a Michelin three-star place, most famous restaurant in the world. And they brought me the wine list and it was like the size of a telephone book wrapped in leather and you could spend money on the wines. And I did not have the money, although I knew I was going to spend money. So I said to the guy and I said, Hey, I know you get all your food from 50, like 50 kilometers from the restaurant. He said, yeah. I said, well, what about wines? And his eyes lit up and he said, I'm taking care of you. And he brought me the best damn things I've ever tasted. Nothing over 30 euro a bottle, right? Local is good. Hmm. Even at Michelin three-star places, local rules. Well, this beer I'm having is, is some excellent beer. It's uh, from Whistler Brewing Co., yep. which is not too far from me. And uh, this one's called Trail Forks Hazy, Hazy Trail Pale Ale. Um, yeah, it's delicious. I love it. So <laughs> there you go. Yahoo! All right, Ted. All right. Your first question of so, seven. I will concentrate. I'll try. What is the most important book you've ever read? Ah! <laughs> Look, I've got learning disabilities. Man, reading <laughs> books is hard. Um, oh, man, I don't know. Next. <laughs> uh, just pick one, Ted. Come What's on. The, what, what jumped into your head? What popped into your mind? I'm going to look... I'm going to look at my library right now and pick one. Um, um, you know what? I'm going to go with my old teenage self, and I'm going to say On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Beautiful. All right. What film has had the greatest impact on you? Oh, you're hurting me. <laughs> what film has had the greatest impact on me? I'm going to say a movie called Scarecrow, shot in 1972 with Gene Hackman and Al Pacino at one uh, the Palme d'Or at Cannes by a filmmaker who really didn't make any more movies after that. And the reason it had an impact on me, is first of all, because I loved it, and second of all, because I actually got to work with Gene Hackman and I asked him about it. And he, you know, in Mr. Hackman style, went, I don't know. Which meant, I think, yeah, that movie meant a lot to me too, but I don't like to talk about it. What is a song that takes you somewhere? Or album, perhaps? Oh, man. You guys are hurting me. It's a song called Here's to Life. Here's to life and all the joy it brings. 
And of course, you know, after a bunch of ciders, I'm, I can't remember the name of the song, but it was important to me. All right. Beautiful. Where do you think creativity comes from? Well, uh, I, I, I got, I got, no, I, I, my brain split into two. Um, one is the answer that I think it's fairly fundamental to the human experience. I don't like generalizing a universalizing human experience because it, that's not a great idea, but I think it's fairly fundamental, but it's also in danger of being taken over by science. So let's, let's, we need to be cautious about it. It's not just the domain of those who are creative, I think it's a fundamental thing. I love that. Uh, how do you, Ted? <laughs> yes. <laughs> how do you find inspiration? Uh, or where do you find inspiration? Uh, it's been hard lately, and I found inspiration here tonight talking to you guys because I've known you for a long time. And because you were students of mine, I find them in my students. All right, I'm, I'm excited about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Go. What is one thing you would tell your childhood self? This is really going to be hard, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there I'm are sorry. so many I, things I would tell my child. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but this is, you know how hard it is now? You ain't seen nothing yet. Oh, that's, that's, that's your word. Sorry. Itself. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. But now ask me what I would never tell my childhood self. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something similar. No. Um, oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> All right, your final question. You've almost made it. What would your future self tell you right now? You can do it. And it'll matter. Thanks for listening to the show. If you got something out of this, if you feel it improved your life or your journey in any way, please take a moment to subscribe, leave a review, or share the episode. You can also support us on Patreon, where we have tons of great bonuses. You are the ones that make the show possible and help us to thrive. Thank you for joining us.